You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me is my often co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me on once again. I just got a few minutes at the end of the last podcast. Yeah, I know. I thought that there were more interesting people than you to have on last week. Well, I'm the default (laughs) guy. I come on whenever you want. The default guy. That's That's, like so depressing. (laughs) It's a story of my life. Like as a millennial, the default guy means something entirely different. Okay. Well, I'm the default co-host. How's that? Yeah, default co-host. That works. And, uh, and guest, podcast guest. You can't be guest and co-host. No, but you I have think to I, pick. Yeah, I think no. I I don't think so because sometimes, see, I'm if if I was a real co-host, then I would be on the same time that you have guests. Right. So but you I'm bought, on you, you when have, you don't have a guest. You haven't bought me the technology that allows me to do that. People were commenting um, on Twitter last week after I mentioned that, that uh, we should have me there and that it would be more exciting if the two of us were both uh, on when we had a guest. Well, To then, pepper them with questions. Okay. All right. Well, we'll set this up for a future episode. In fact, I know the perfect guest that we can have, who I spoke with earlier today, I won't spoil it, um, who expressed some interest in coming on the podcast and you and he can just talk for hours. Okay. I don't want to, I'm not going to try and guess who it is because there's lots of people in that category. But um, yeah, I've been thinking about the technology that we need and I've just been a week of bad technology stuff. So we had the internet went down in the office on the weekend downtown. Um, and, uh, then we had our, one of our computers died. And so I basically spent all this time thinking about how wires are supposed to be connected. I don't want to, I don't want to think about this just yet. I'll think about it after my brain has recovered from my stressful, no internet and dead computer weekend. I understand. So let's get right to driving law. Yeah. So you and I had separate, but equally exciting Friday nights. Uh, last week. Did we? You're, you're looking at me all like panicked. Like, what did we do on Friday that I've forgotten? I watched the Chung hearing at home in my pajamas and yelled at the screen of my computer. I listened to it here. And you listened to it here and probably also yelled. Yeah. I, I listened to it. I walked around. I groaned. Mm-hmm. I yelled. I, uh, I, you know, suffered greatly. Mm -hmm. Um, so this was the appeal at the Supreme Court of Canada. I could not get it on my phone with the video, which was fine because I was sitting here trying to fix a computer that had died earlier in the day. Um, but, uh, this was the appeal of the dangerous driving acquittal causing death. Uh, what was the, the appeal of the... Well, we're at the Supreme Court of Canada now, so it's yeah. the appeal of the Court of Appeals decision to uh, overturn, to the, overturn acquittal. the acquittal and send it back for a new trial. So actually, was, no, uh, they just sent it back for sentencing. Just sent, yeah, they yeah. sent it back for sentencing. So now it's at the Supreme Court of Canada, and it's dealing with the whole idea of dangerous operation of a motor vehicle when the primary issue is speed. So historically, there's been lots of cases that have said speed and something. And that speeding itself was covered by provincial legislation to deal with speeding uh, and the dangerous operation of a motor vehicle required something else. 
Well, there wasn't, though, and this was the this was the debate, part of the debate at the Supreme Court of Canada, because um, the nature of the appeal, and I think perhaps, unfortunately, kind of missed the mark on the bigger issue of this mens rea question, but the nature of the appeal was that the Court of Appeal didn't like the result. So rather than say, we don't like the result, but there's no legal error, these were all, you know, factual findings made by the judge and there's no, you know, the Crown can't take an appeal from, from that. Um, uh, we're going to find, we're going to shoehorn in a legal error by saying that the judge said that there has to be something in addition to speed itself. And the argument was that's not exactly what he said. Correct. So when we got the Court of Appeal decision, I guess we thought the same thing that uh, many other lawyers thought, and that was the Court of Appeal just doesn't like the fact that the judge acquitted him. The judge applied the the test, um, you know, in his own mind and came to the conclusion on the basis of the finding of fact that this did not constitute dangerous operation of a motor vehicle because it didn't fulfill the sort of requirements of it. Yeah, and when I look at the at the original judgment, you know, it, it wasn't just this idea that there has to be speed and. It was in the context of that particular driving using the judge's local knowledge of that particular area and where the way that people drive in Vancouver when they're trying to speed up to get to Over the, the course light. of a ridiculously short period of time. Seconds. Where there was braking in that period of seconds, it wasn't enough with it only being speed on those facts to amount to dangerous driving. And so there he needed to be an and. He found a reasonable doubt. There needed to be an and for him. Mm. Um, and this was one of those cases where it had to be speed and, not where the speed itself was so ludicrous that it constituted dangerous driving in and of itself. Yeah. And so when the Court of Appeal decision came out, it was kind of just trumping the finding of fact by the uh, provincial court judge and um, I think many people were not you know I was not satisfied with that I didn't like no. that we I didn't like the court appeal here. but part of the thing about it that bothers me is the whole concept of the finding of fact and I I, I usually am coming at it from a different angle uh, and that is that um, judges findings of fact are deferred to just generally uh, and judges can make findings of fact that are not um, not really well-founded uh, ultimately, you know, if you want to be cynical about it, make findings of fact to get a certain result. So make yeah. findings of fact to fit a legal test. Uh, and that is to me, I, I'll tell you deep in my heart, I think it's the greatest flaw of our justice system, uh, because you can have all sorts of un injustice, uh, and everybody's got a motive and even judges unfortunately have a motive sometimes, whether they, they know it or not. Uh, and the fact that you are stuck with the findings of fact at the lower court is a big concern for me, usually when somebody's convicted. <laughs> right. But, but if you're convicted, you do have an appeal from an unreasonable verdict. Whereas the crown doesn't get to go, ah, shit, the judge fucked up the findings of fact. Now we get another kick at the can. Exactly. I do like that. I like that, that, you know, if you get off cause the judge effed it up on the facts, that's okay. I know. I know. But the problem is and this that case in this is case was the was the reverse where the where the court of appeal is looking at it and they want to apply the apply it the other way around. And you can 
almost see in the hearing, and I do recommend for people who've sort of been following our ongoing discussions about this case on the podcast, you can almost see in the hearing counsel for Mr. Chung basically saying to the Supreme Court of Canada, and they, they read right between the lines with him, you know, you don't like the verdict, and so you're searching for a legal error so that you can undo the findings of fact. And, you know, I, I think at one point he did say, you don't like the outcome. And they're like, well, wait a minute, counsel. Don't tell us we don't like the outcome. That's not what we're focused on here. No, it was uh, the commentary from the court was um, interesting and bothered me to some extent. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, you know, for the most part, they wanted to stick to the where's the error of law. Well, when Justice Brown, like the 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 crown stands up to make his submissions and justice brown goes before you start i would have convicted this guy i absolutely would have convicted him and you're like oh fuck uh, this is not going to go well but then i had a little hope yeah because he turned around and said but that's said, not the point that's not what the point. i would have done as the trial judge is not the point the point where's, here is yeah. where's the error where's the legal the error and yeah. the crown did really struggle in the hearing to articulate what the error of law was. And it looked like the Crown's argument was essentially something that Justice Karakatsanis, I'm not pronouncing it, Karakatsanis, I'm not sure. I'm it, sorry. It was, it was pronounced sorry, for Justice. us when we were there. Yeah. I'm sure <laughs> she's not listening. A, a speaking uh, Justice's name's pronunciation lesson, but that yeah. was many years ago. Um, yeah, you're right. She's definitely not listening. So I can call her whatever I want. That lady. Nice lady judge. <laughs> nice Greek lady judge yeah lady judge who was you know sitting center so taking the uh, lead role also five judge division which i thought was interesting mm -hmm. um the um what she had suggested to counsel for mr chung in the hearing that well isn't there a point though where a verdict is so unreasonable that it could only have been caused by a legal error and can't we use, like, a massively unreasonable verdict to get a legal error? And it seemed to be that the Crown picked up on that and thought they would run with that in their submissions. But then she was like, yeah, but we can't do that. So I don't know. Like, I don't know. I, I thought at the end of the defense case that this was for sure going to be upheld. Oh, yeah. And I know when I, when I Richard Fowler finished, I thought they were done. I mean, I was they, trying not to name him. They were, he's a good lawyer and a nice guy. He, um, they were grilling him. I kind of felt that sometimes he wasn't listening to the answer, the question, mm -hmm. because he wanted to focus on the main thing that he wanted to focus on. And I understand why he wanted to stick with that because it, it is kind of safe, but they were also throwing questions at him that I think he could have answered a little bit, you know, more fully, but uh, you know, you're standing in front of the court and you're being peppered by judges at the Supreme Court of Canada. It's not always, you're not always going to formulate your best answer. And the safest thing may have been just to stick with, with what he had there. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there, I agree with you on your perception of him, but I think there were also two other things going on. And I know this because I've experienced it before. Sometimes when you're in front of a really hot bench and you're getting peppered with a lot of questions and you feel like you're losing, you get this tunnel vision and you can't think outside this box 
because you're you're so frantic about all of this questioning that's coming even before you're finishing your sentences in response to the last question, which was exactly what was happening to him. And I think he was probably having some of that tunnel vision. Like, I know I have this argument. I know I put this in my factum. I just need to, like, hang you know, desperately hang on to this one thread. Get through my time here. And, and survive. <laughs> yeah, like, that, it's a survival that, that, thing. No, I, I know. And I, I've experienced it myself, too. Um, usually when I'm not very confident about the way they've restructured my argument to throw it back at me. And unlike in, in you know, provincial court or the court of appeal where this, this happened to me once, you don't, at the Supreme Court of Canada, get to say, you know what, I need five minutes to just stand down and collect my thoughts on this issue. And I did an appeal... Shortly after um, my grandfather passed away, and uh, it was Justice um, Bennett looked at me and she said, "Counsel, do you need a minute?" And I was like, "Yeah, I do," because yeah. <laughs> I was just like, "They it was a very hot bench. They were peppering me with questions emotionally. I was, you know, still a little raw, and it was a hard, hard one of my harder cases that I've done." Yeah, I um, Judge Angela Mattis. Um, was peppering me once with questions like that and just in provincial court, what about this? What about this? What about that? I was like, oh, okay, look, you're, you're, you are wearing me down. Mm-hmm. You're wearing me down more than I wear down a witness in cross-examination. Can I just have a couple of minutes to think about it? Because yeah, it's the same thing. You you do get yeah. tunnel vision. But I don't, I don't know that that was quite the issue with Richard. I thought, um, I think he was specifically choosing not to answer those questions because I think he was leaving it open for... You know, if you have those hard questions about like how, you know, I think Roe put it this way, absolutely maniacal that speed is, I think in a case like that, you have to anticipate that those questions are going to be asked. But after the end of that, okay, after the Crown was peppered with that, I, I think that, I think they were baiting him. You know, I thought they were trying to bait Richard a little bit there with that, where he would say, well, hang on a second... You know, it's not for you to be picking apart the facts of the case. The facts of the case have been decided by, you know, the judge in, in provincial court. Um, and, uh, you know, he could have engaged him on that. And he could have said, yeah, you know what? Over an extended period, maniacal. A short-term period can be a mistake, mm-hmm. which is why this is a, a civil issue, not a criminal issue. Um, he could have engaged them on that. He could have pushed back and fought back with that. And that was a debate that he probably had in the provincial court with a provincial court judge. Um, no doubt, because it was, you know, it was a significant facts and significant speed, but for a very, very short distance, very short period of time. Anyway, the, uh, I was pleased to see that the, uh, the lawyer for the government was grilled on those points. Basically, you don't like the decision. Um, and um, that's why you appealed it, not an issue of there's a legal error. And that's why you appealed it. Yeah. But I mean, I I do think we can safely say one thing coming from the questioning of the court. They are going to have some commentary, for sure, in their decision that addresses this question of, is it speed and, or can it be just speed? And then they're going to get into whether this just speed was enough. I was worried that there was um, parsing of the decision um, in the I discussion. Felt I felt that it was really being being picked apart and not necessarily fairly, not looking at the whole of the of the decision as they were discussing it. And you, I've you know, I've seen it in court where you've been. Uh, the courts come back to you and say you're parsing the decision. Yes, and... I, I wished that Richard <clears throat> had the line that uh, 
I believe it was Justice Smith said to me once in the Court of Appeal, was, she just retired, um, counsel, you don't parse the words of a decision like you parse the words of a statute. To which I safely did not respond with what I thought to respond initially, which was, well, then maybe you shouldn't write it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Spend a little bit more time writing your decisions so, so <laughs> yeah. they're better. The, um, the years ago, I think there was a, it was a ASD case out of Manitoba called Woods came out uh, and it was uh, Justice Fish writing for the Supreme Court of Canada. And I was like, oh, this writing, he's just like, he's, He's got all the right points here. He's just not using it in the terminology that we all need to be able to be using. Like, and I, I wanted to phone him up and say, be just a little more careful next time. Just send it to me as a draft. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Fish was good though on criminal law. Oh, he was a great guy too. Anyway. So Chung, it will remain to be seen what will happen. I expect we'll get a fast decision on that one. One, because I think they all recognize the pain that this has caused the family of the victim but also because with a five judge panel and fewer people to argue in the back room uh-huh and uh, the chief judge was not sitting on that panel and you know he's all like let's all dissent is that what he is yeah I don't know that. I don't know what the, I just remember yeah, when Nerf. Beverly McLaughlin was on, was first appointed, she said, um, we're going to try and get more unanimity. consistency and unanimity. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that they ever did. They did. They did. Yeah, and dissents are up like 26% or something. I was just gone. reading some stats. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Since yeah. she left. Well, I like the dissents because I see, I have a very different opinion of the court a lot of the time. And when I see the dissents, I can see, you know what, I've got my legitimate view of it as well. It may not be what the law is, but I have my legitimate view of it as well. And I don't like the pressure for them not to dis to provide a dissent. Yes. But I never read them. <laughs> I never read the dissents. In law school, I'd read the dissents and I never read them. So. Well, moving on, something more interesting, perhaps to you and me. Well, more applicable today. I mean, the reality is that the, this decision will be interesting us because we've already seen people being charged yes. with speeding cases with dangerous driving since that decision came out from the court of appeal. Well, I had, I had a case where I had to enter a dangerous driving plea because of speed well, and, you know, no. but for the court of appeal decision, I might've fought it out. No, but I had, I have had cases where the limitation period was coming up and it was just speed and an accident, and now people are being charged with dangerous driving. And that is clearly a direction from the Crown back to the police, back to Crown Council to approve charges based on the BC Court of Appeal decision. So everything could change when the Supreme Court of Canada renders a decision, but I don't think it's going to change everything a lot. Yeah. Um, okay. But I want to talk about this other decision. Let's get to, I just, want, I just want to say that this is, a, that one is very applicable to us. This also is very applicable to us. Go yes. ahead. So this is a decision uh, from the BC Supreme Court. It was uh, published today, released yesterday. Um, today being Wednesday, because we're recording early this week. Yes, you're right. We are recording early. I'm sorry, I forgot. We've been asked to put the dates in our podcast when we're like doing it so that people have a reference. Time, date. Yeah. Today yeah. being the 22nd. Today being January 22nd and the date of the podcast being January 24th. 24th. So anyway, um, first thing I found really interesting about this case was that counsel for the law society 
was um, uh, Angie Westmacott and Alandra Harlington, who are often opposite us on um, like judicial reviews of IRPs. And yet here they are representing the law society in something that protects what we do. Um, yeah, protects lawyers, um, I suppose, protects the public more than anything, I think. Protects the I public, think. which is what the um, judge found. And ultimately, um, the uh, yeah, their firm uh, gets a lot of work in Victoria, appellate work. Mm-hmm. And some heavier things. So this, um, this decision mm. involved an individual by the name of Jeremy Maddock. Um, very interesting connections there. Uh, his dad was a lawyer and is now no longer a lawyer and is now a traffic court judicial justice of the peace. Why is this interesting? Uh, Because Jeremy Maddock uh, graduated from UVic Law School, went on to article, um, temporary article with his dad's firm when his dad was still a lawyer, but then his dad became a JJP, so we couldn't article with him and never completed articles anywhere. Like didn't, I don't know why, never got articles anywhere else. It's going to be hard now. I often don't understand that. Yes. Yeah, I know, right? Like, you certainly he must know somebody who can get him an article. I somebody mean, somebody he went to law school with has got a job and they can persuade somebody in their firm to take the person on? God, if he had contacted our firm and said, I'm, like, deeply interested in traffic tickets, probably. Probably would have taken <laughs> him on. Probably would have taken him on. Um, uh, anyway, he said um, that he should be allowed, as a non-lawyer to appear as an agent in traffic court, essentially representing people for a fee in traffic court, uh, giving them legal advice, conducting cross-examinations, doing their trials. He's acted in appeals of traffic ticket convictions, as well as some, like, um, hearings before tribunals, and is is uh, has petitioned the BC Supreme Court for an order finding that he is eligible to do this, even though the Legal Professions Act says only a lawyer can do legal work. And of course, he'd get around a lot of things if he could do that. He wouldn't have to pay law society fees. Mm -hmm. Uh, He wouldn't have to pay for the insurance. I mean, he'd be taking a big risk, but he wouldn't have to pay for the insurance. Um, um, There's lots of things he wouldn't be bound by, like the regulation that we're bound by through the Law Society and the Legal Professions Act, Code of Conduct, and so forth. So, you know, how do you run it? How do you run a trust account? How do you how do you have your office? How do you collect payment in those circumstances um, without all of that regulation that we have as lawyers? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of good reasons to do it for protection of the public. Um, the court doesn't really, in this decision, get into it. I'm just saying, think of all the things you would get around. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you'd avoid having to be regulated, essentially. Yeah, and it would be super cool. Uh, and I'm sure it's a great gig. And... Mm-hmm. What surprises me, like, I just, I don't, I don't get it. Like, I've met Jeremy in traffic court, seen him doing his thing that he's now prohibited from doing. Um, You jumped to the end. Well, but I think everybody knows where it's going. Um, And he's not dumb. Like, he gets it. He knows, he knows the law. He knows all the cases. So why not just article, get a law degree? The fees aren't, I mean, they're, they're expensive, but they're not something he wouldn't be able to pay. He made on one of these files, it talks about what he was paid for the work he did, and he'd build somebody 2100 bucks. Well, there's half your fees for the year. Quarter, sort of, okay. uh, whatever. Well, still, that, uh, that's one file. A third. And we know he's doing more than one, because there's three that are specifically addressed in this, three that the law society knew about. 
So the decision came out and this was, um, so he was petitioning to be able to do this or he was being, yes, the law society was he filed a petition to... because the law society said and you have you to stop do doing this. Okay. And he said, okay, well fine. I'm going to seek a, seek an order from the court. Judicial review, basically of the law society's decision. Um, well, no, because it's, it's not really, I guess he was seeking, petitioning the court to interpret section 15 of the legal professions act and to interpret the offense act, um, section 57 sub two, which says that you can have an agent, agent. in traffic court and to decide on the interplay between those things. And of course he has standing to ask the court to do that because he's an interested party. Well, for sure. So, so he asked the court. He asked the court. And uh, how does it go? Look, not well for Jeremy. <laughs> well, what is, give, give me the details because I haven't read the decision. I can see it's printed here, but I haven't read oh, it. Oh, I tagged you in a tweet and everything. Well, I know. You said we're going to talk about this today. And <laughs> I, I saw it in the tweet. I thought see the tweet and be like, oh, I better read this. Yeah, well, I didn't have time. Um, I printed it out. Look, yeah. at least we have a printout. That's true. So basically, um, the argument involved three separate files that he was dealing with. The uh, Joel case, the Sherby case, and the Yusuf case. In Mr. Joel's case, he was representing him in like a like a some type of tribunal hearing thing um, and was found to have violated the Legal Professions Act because he took conduct of the hearing and did all of the settlement conferences and stuff while not being a lawyer. Then there was the Sherby case, which was an appeal in BC Supreme Court um, where he was actually granted by uh, Associate Chief Just... No. Yeah, by just. I don't remember who, by Colin, I think. But um, he was granted standing to actually do what he was doing. But the judge was like, but I'm not deciding that you're allowed to do this. I'm just going to allow it in this instance because I don't want to prejudice Mr. Sherby. This was back in 2017. And then there was the Yusuf case, um, which involved uh, an appeal, a summary conviction appeal of a traffic ticket Um conviction where he prepared the legal argument signed it like you know mr yeah, yusuf is, didn't sign it yeah this is jeremy maddox signed it yeah jeremy maddox signs off on it puts his name on the argument as agent not counsel but of course he's now out of once he's into the summary conviction appeal territory mm -hmm. he's out of the framework of his argument of saying he's allowed to be an agent in traffic court because he's not acting pursuant to the offense That's act act he's anymore. acting in a court proceeding he's initiating the court proceeding he's filing pleadings he's preparing and drafting proceedings specific activities that the legal professions act says are prohibited so really the i mean he was going to lose on all those three it was obvious so then really the issue in the case came down to whether or not this one provision of the offense act that says that you can have counsel or an agent appear meant that an agent could charge you a fee or could appear for free. Although I don't know how he's, you know, making money and appearing for free, but there seems to be some kind of scheme there. Oh, sure. You could always say, I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'll, cover review, my expenses. I'll review your ticket for $500 and I'll appear for free for you in court. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's ways to get around it, but, um, this one provision and his argument um, pertaining to the fact that because agents were allowed and counsel was specifically named in the statute, that agent meant something other than a lawyer. And the court said, yes, it agent does. does mean something other than a lawyer. 
your dad can show up for you as agent and ask for it to be adjourned. Yep. Your your family member or close friend can come to court to support you, can sit there with you while you're giving your evidence and talk to you about it, but can't make submissions on your behalf. Mm -hmm. That's an agent. Or an agent can also mean people that aren't lawyers but are authorized to appear in court. Articled students. Um, people like uh, law students at, uh, at working with clinics. Those are all agents. They are, are not, not lawyers. lawyers. It's open. This is what's interesting to well, me. Well, it's also a lawyer can appear as agent in traffic court. You can appear as agent for your whole trial in traffic mm -hmm. court. Yep. The only issue is you're giving up the argument with respect to identity. Yes. And there's a risk that having a lawyer appear as agent, a JJP has the power under the Offense Act to order that the accused make a personal appearance. And in those circumstances, if they don't show up, can issue an arrest warrant. Yeah. I've never I mean, seen it happen in 20 I don't years. Think it, usually the JJPs are like, you're appearing as, a, as counsel and agent? Yes. Okay. And uh, the reason that you're uh, you're appearing as agent. You understand that means that the the ID has to be admitted. And you're like, yes. Yeah. Because as we've discussed on Brandon's case, it's hard to win on ID. It's very hard to win on ID. I had a case where I was able to appear as agent where ID was still an issue. And I can't remember how it worked out, but I explained it to the officer in the hallway and he's like, oh, oh, you're right. Oh, um, so <laughs> it was a strange set of facts and it yeah. will probably never happen again. Uh, but uh, for the most part, you're giving up that ID argument anytime you're appearing as agent. But I mean, you don't need your client there most of the time because your clients, you, you're not likely to need to put your client on the witness stand in most traffic ticket trials. Correct. Um, anyway, so that's very interesting. They agree with him in principle, but reject his specific claim. And then... The Law Society said, well, we want an injunction to prevent him from doing this at all because he's not, you know, we've asked him nicely, we've asked him not so nicely, and here he is again. And the only reason that he brought this petition is because we basically threatened to bring proceedings to get an injunction. And then he thought, oh, I'll file a petition to sort it out. Yeah. And so the Law Society was awarded the injunction. So now Maddock is, is specifically prohibited from acting as agent in any legal matters and performing legal work. And, uh, and that's fascinating that he put it that far rather than uh, just articling. Just get an articling job. Like how hard could it possibly yeah. be? Uh, even, uh, of course, maybe he decided that the uh, earlier alleged violations um, by the law society, which they hadn't proven in court, he felt that he could challenge it beforehand to ensure he could still enroll and become a lawyer. Maybe that was a strategic decision to do that. Maybe. I mean, now that all this has happened, though, like, I mean, if you want to think about, go back to, you know, 2016, 2017, when he was still a temporary articled student and then in his third year of law school, if he had just not done all of this, found himself an articling job, he would have had no problem being admitted, presumably. I assume there's nothing else that prevents him from being admitted to the bar. But now that he's gone through all of this, now he will have trouble becoming an articled student. 
I don't think it will keep him from being admitted to the bar. I think that they will still permit him to be admitted to the bar. No, because he's going to have to answer to the credentials committee about character. Sure, and he'll answer to the credentials committee, and I think they'll just allow it. You think? Sure, he'll say he was stressed, um, something. He'll come up with something, they'll allow it. You watch, they'll allow it. Well, I just think he'll have to jump through more hoops. It'll just take longer. Yeah, and it'll be more expensive. There may be some other thing that has stopped him from it. Yes. Now That we don't know about. The last issue is, um, uh, is costs. Because remember, this guy's representing himself, and he's against the Law Society, who, as we've just established, likes to take a hefty sum of money from lawyers, um, has hired some very pricey, very good lawyers in Victoria to represent it in these hearings, and they were awarded their costs. So he has to pay scale B costs for a three-day petition hearing. Yeah, that'll be a big bill, um, one would think. I don't know. Uh, The point is, though, as lawyers, um, members of the Law Society, I want to see that money recovered as much as, you know, what they can in costs. See, I don't. I don't think that, you know, it's not going to help because now you're, you're forcing this guy into a position where he has to, what, like, find money that he doesn't have because he's not working because his entire employment plan has been to do this thing that he's not allowed to do that's illegal for him to do. So you don't think he should pay costs because he's he's lost his employment as a result of this? His self-created yeah. employment that was yeah, I do. not permissible in yeah. the first place? Yeah, Little guy against the man. Yeah, he lost. Yeah, it was a situation of his own making, but why should he have to pay costs? Well, I um, I guess the little guy against the man, I have no problem with testing this, and it's a piece of legislation, and he had a, an argument that he felt was valid and should be made. I'm not a big fan of the whole idea of costs, to be perfectly honest. The other thing I will say is that... Um, Particularly when it comes to interpretation of legislation. You know, you say it was an argument he felt he should make... I think, you know, to say some good things about Jeremy, he's not dumb, um, I think that it is an argument that needed to be made. I am happy with the outcome. Obviously, I'm very, you know, personally interested in the outcome because this is, you know, some of my income comes from this work. Well, we've also been concerned, like legitimately concerned, which is why we did the duty council project. We've been legitimately concerned about, um, about, uh, people in traffic court not being properly represented and access to justice. Yep. No, I just, um, I'm, I I just think that this needed to happen because we've seen some paralegal firms and, and, you know, models like they use in Alberta and Ontario, uh, sniffing out again, the possibility of representing, people in traffic court in British Columbia. And it's just nice to see the court confirm that there isn't an avenue for that, that this has to be um, lawyers doing the legal work. Um, I think, and and Justice Shergill in the decision does characterize it as important to the protection of the public. And I think that it is going to protect the public from what happens when you have untrained people trying to conduct trials in potentially very complex matters that can have very devastating consequences for people. The, uh, a few years back, it was about six years ago, maybe there was some, uh, uh, one of these 
traffic ticket people from Ontario came out and declared that they wanted to challenge their injunction, which was like 25 years old from the a law society application. That case is referred to in here. Is it? He was successful in Ontario and he was unsuccessful in BC. We took so, it to the BC Court of Appeal and lost. I know. And he took it to the Ontario Court of Appeal and won. And there's commentary from Justice Shergill, and I'm glad that you brought this up because it's actually the last thing I wanted to talk about on this. On this. The Justice Shergill in the decision says, it's probably the case that those Ontario decisions are no longer good law because after they were decided, the Legal Professions Act in Ontario was amended to specifically prohibit all the things that the declaration from the Ontario Court of Appeals said that that individual could do. So they amended the legislation in response to a court decision. It just appears there has been no enforcement in Ontario. So Ontario lawyers who are listening... You may have grounds, and you might want to look at your, your Legal Profession Act equivalent. You may have grounds for a complaint that these people are performing legal work they're not authorized to do. And you might have the basis, the lever for it right here in this decision. Yes. So uh, I would like to see that because when the uh, fellow came out to try and challenge it and went on the news and I was on the debate with him, um, I can tell you I was not impressed. And 30 years ago, I hired a paralegal in Alberta to defend my traffic ticket long before Lost. I was a student. Well, he, he actually showed up and pled me guilty. Uh, I had a friend who went and watched. So, um, and there was no, no way to regulate it. What was I going to do? Sue him, you know, at the yeah. time. So there was uh, no law society to complain to about it. He just, I paid him $325 and he went and pled me guilty. Well, you know. And never reported to me. Saved you negative $165. I don't know what the fine was back then, probably like $43. That was probably like 95 bucks or yeah, something or $67 or something. <laughs> anyway, it was a speeding ticket. It was a long time ago and, uh, and he pled me out. That's and, very sad. Uh, if, uh, Maybe the evidence against you was incredibly strong. I've heard some stories of how you used to drive. I was very careful. I've always been a careful driver. Just like our ridiculous driver of the week. Ridiculous driver of the week. I'm a like basically a professional driver. I was driving, <laughs> selling advertising for the auto trader. I drove 200 kilometers a day. I was an excellent, excellent driver. I was also a drinker, but I wouldn't drink and drive. Well, you remind me of our ridiculous driver of the week, who is from from Florida, which just makes it that much better. Uh, pulled over for uh, impaired driving. His blood alcohol level three times the legal limit. Beauty. Um, and he told cops, no, 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 it's okay. I'm a professional drinker. Professional drinker. Professional drinker. I mean, that's pretty good. Well, well. He was speeding, just like you. <laughs> you were guilty. Uh, I have no idea. Actually, I, I do remember the facts, so. Were you speeding? Um, I don't know. I it's was, okay. Uh, the limitation period's up. It doesn't matter. I'm guilty. I was convicted. No, I uh, replaced a clutch in a Honda Prelude for somebody, and I took it for a little test drive after I'd done it. Uh, it was for a friend, and so I didn't know. And he was using moving radar, radar coming the other direction. Ooh, moving radar. Oh, I know. I could have won that trial. Why didn't you hire a, he, me? He was a real jerk, too. He was like, I'm the trainer, and so don't even bother trying to dispute it. That, and that's what got me. That reminds me of someone. 
Yes, reminds me of a few people, but um, <laughs> I've experienced I've, I've experienced that officer in my career, uh, not that particular officer, but this, the, uh, the 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 type. I just love the 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 excuse. You know, I'm a professional driver. Like we hear that a lot. Yeah, but I'm yeah. a professional drinker. Like at least you're being honest. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm wondering if that's not quite what he intended to express. Probably <laughs> the next day he thought differently about that. He probably didn't remember at that blood alcohol mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. Although what was he at? What was he at? Two eighteen. That's pretty high. That's, That's really pretty high. high. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, do not use that excuse if you get caught uh, drinking and driving. Being a professional drinker or driver or drinker and driver will win you no favors. And uh, please don't drive over point zero five. Oh my God! You made a rhyme. I made that rhyme many times. I don't like it. Uh, <laughs> you're allowed to drink and drive so long as you're under 0 0.05. And you have a class five license. And you're not impaired. And you're not driving in a professional capacity. What? Class five license? Oh, yeah. You can't yeah, do it with a class seven. You can't have any alcohol yeah. with a class seven. You can have a class one license. Fine. But a class five or, or higher. Yeah. Don't drive over 0 0.05. Feel free to drive at 0 0.03. As long as you're not impaired. <laughs> as long as you're not operating a commercial you're, vehicle. You're free to drive 0 .03. As long as you're not in breach of your employment contract. Feel free to drive at 0 .03. Uh, you know what? Don't take Paul's advice. People who are listening, this is terrible advice. Just don't drink and drive. And if you do, call me. Yeah. Well, you'll do your best. I will. Um, all right. Well, that's our podcast. Well, thank you once again for uh, having me as the uh, quasi guest host and sometimes guest and uh, I enjoyed it and I look forward to next week because maybe I'll be the guest again maybe you will be and if you need to reach us you can find us online vancouvercriminallaw.com or uh, find us on the telephone at 604-685-8889 <laughs>